No, you do not need to take your glasses off and clean your lenses. You're not having double vision. There are two of us up here. <laughs> you came on the right Sunday. You get two for the price of one today. You'll be hearing from both of us. Um, we are continuing on in our sermon series, Addition by Multiplication. And so just a quick recap. Um, week one, we heard about the life of Esther uh, and calling out the leader in you. And then uh, week two, we kind of sort of heard about the life of David, the unlikely leader, took a, a very, very slight detour. We're back on course now. Uh, week three with multi-generational leadership, uh, hence the two of us up here. Um, I did the math, and there is a 28-year age gap between us. Um, Rachel's nine, so for those of you who are doing the math, just add nine to 28, and you have my age. Perfect. She, she really, I mean, she's just tall for her age. Yeah, just really tall. She's really nine. Um, but anyways, we, um, in talking about multi-generational leadership, um, we, we really are both passionate about it. And I, when I think about multi-generational leadership, find this to be true. Um, I cannot have the attitude or mindset toward Rachel or someone from her generation that, you know, you're, you're young, still a little wet behind the ears. And I shared this first service when I said that to her, she said, what does that mean? And I'm like, the old people will know. <laughs> still a little wet behind the ears. I'm not quite sure that you have enough experience under your belt to share. So you just sit aside and you watch the older ones do it and you learn, and then maybe in a couple of years, you'll have something to share. Um, that can't be my approach, that can't be our approach. Um, instead, our mindset and our approach has to be this. Um, you bring something to the table, I acknowledge that. And uh, you have, you carry with you a perspective that I may not. Um, the spiritual climate that you are growing up in, I did not grow up in. And uh, you have opportunities and experiences that I don't. And so uh, I respect that. In my, whoa, hello. <laughs> in my, in my perspective, can't be, hey, Lucy, you're kind of old. I'm finna trying to do my own thing. You can't possibly have anything relevant to share. So why don't you just yeet on out of here? And like, let me take it from here. It's cool. I got it. That cannot be my perspective or mindset. My attitude and perspective should be, hey, Lucy, you've walked through a lot of situations and experiences that I have not. And you've learned really important and valuable lessons from those that I know that I can learn from. And so I want to walk with you and learn from that. Amen. Yeah. And so... We are here today um, with a word of encouragement and some truth to share on multi-generational leadership and ministry. Uh, we're here as a real-time example of what that could look like. There are many ways that it could look, but today us presenting the message together is just one of those ways of uh, presenting to you multi-generational leadership and what that looks like. Exactly. When we talk about multi-generational leadership or multi-generational anything, um, I find that when I've stepped into conversations like those, um, they tend to kind of bubble around these three generations at this point in time, which is the boomers, Gen X, and millennials. But me, I'm at, like, I'm at the cutoff of millennials. Right after millennials, we have Gen Z, who are 
Some of them are in college. Some of them are graduating college, getting ready to enter the workforce. And there's some big differences between millennials and Gen Z. And then on top of that, experts are already looking at the next, next generation, which is Generation Alpha. And those are kids who are six years old and younger and are going to be born all the way to 2025. I don't know how they got to have the cool name, but it's fine. <laughs> when we say multi-generational leadership, multi-generational ministry, that's a term that we'll use a lot in the church. But I find when I walk out of work or walk out of my life in the church and go to like the grocery store, I don't use multi-generational as a term very often. Like I wouldn't describe Whataburger as a multi-generational establishment. People will say, hey, describe Whataburger. I'm like, they got great fries. They have a super great Dr. Pepper shake. It's really orange. But I wouldn't say multi-generational. But when you think about Whataburger, you wouldn't have Whataburger without Gen Z. You wouldn't have Whataburger without millennials and boomers and Gen X all working together. By its own nature, it is multi-generational. So, and I think we find that with a lot of aspects in our lives. So I'm really excited that we get to talk about it today. And we're going to look at Elijah and Elisha as examples of that. All right. So I'm going to start out by uh, just pulling the curtain back a little bit on the life of Elijah. Um, to give you a biblical example of what um, multi-generational leadership looks like. Um, some scriptures will appear on the screen. Um, those are just reference points. As I talk about the life of Elijah, um, that's where you can find some of this um, truth, some of his story in those scripture references. We won't necessarily be reading through those. Okay, so 1 King uh, gives us a very good account of the life of Elijah. Uh, Elijah was a prophet during the reign of King Ahab and King Azariah, and King Azariah uh, is the son of Ahab. And just to give you an idea of the spiritual climate, um, during the time of Elijah, it says that King Ahab uh, did more evil than anyone before him. Uh, he was an evil man, he was a wicked man, and um, this was the king during the time of Elijah's uh, prophetic ministry. And Ahab was married to a woman named Jezebel. You may have heard of her. Jezebel uh, introduced uh, the pagan worship of Baal uh, to the nation and to the people of Israel. He uh, was supposed to be the god of nature or the elemental god. And so Jezebel uh, introduced the worship of this false god to the Israelites. And so the period that um, Elijah prophesied in was marked by political upheaval and spiritual decay. Uh, and the people of Israel, they were beginning to think, you know, maybe it's not so bad to mix the worship of Baal with the worship of God, you know, no big deal. But uh, Elijah's ministry and prophetic voice uh, was very much directed to unveiling that spiritual contamination uh, and to bringing God's people back to worshiping the one true God. In fact, Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God. Uh, some of you may be familiar with um, some of the stories um, that surround the life of Elijah. Uh, one in particular is when he challenged the prophets of Baal, and he did this to unveil um, that uh, Baal was a false god and that he was powerless uh, when held up to the one true God. And so Elijah, he had the reputation of being the prophet who showed up, he laid down the law, and he did it with a great demonstration of power. 
And so uh, that wasn't lost on the people uh, of Israel. He, they knew about this great prophet named Elijah. Uh, there's one account in the Bible that says Elijah was going along his way and a man met up with him and stopped and had a conversation with Elijah and Elijah prophesied some things to him. And this man went back to the king and he was talking about this interaction and uh, the king said, wait a minute, describe this guy to me. And so he, you know, described Elisha, he described what he was wearing. And the king said, oh boy, that was Elijah. What did he say to you? I mean, Elijah was known for, he would show up and he would say, this is what the word of the Lord says. There is no two ways about it. And he laid down the law. And I said, you know, wh where I come from and where I grew up, it was like he showed up and he showed out. And then he left, <laughs> you know. And so um, that was his reputation. Um, but this was also the man who announced to King Ahab that there would not be one drop of rain until he said so. And so there was a drought for several years. And he said, only at my word will it rain. And that's exactly what happened. This is a man who was fed by ravens. Um, there was one point in his life, and I'll uh, reference that a little bit later, where um, the ravens brought him his, his food. Um, this was a man who played a part in a great miracle where a widow and her son, um, they had a miracle. They experienced their food supply never running out. She had um, some flour and some oil. And uh, when Elijah met up with her, he was hungry. And he said, hey, uh, make me a, a, a cake of flour. Um, something that would be similar to like maybe cornbread or a pancake for us. And she said, well, you know, I only have enough for me and my son to eat. And then we're planning on just eating it and dying. And Elijah says, how about this? How about you feed me first? And then um, the Lord is going to bless and multiply. And that's exactly what happened uh, because she honored the prophet and she fed him. Her supply never ran out. And so Elijah got to be a part of that uh, miracle. And then this is also a man who outran a chariot. Uh, scripture says he girded up his skirt, kind of tucked it between his knees and took off and he actually outran a chariot. So, I mean, I think maybe he was into CrossFit or something like that. <laughs> so this is a great prophet of God, a, a great man of God. Like I said, he, he just had the reputation of showing up, um, just, uh, you know, this is what the Lord says. This is what the law is. This is who Yahweh is. He is the one true God. There is no worshiping of any other gods. And so he was a very strong prophetic voice to the nation of Israel, yet his time to be prophet was coming to an end. And so I want us to join in on the story. Uh, we find it in 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, 15 through 19. I'll be reading that passage. Um, I'll be reading it out of the NIV. So if you are following along with a different version, it may look a little different, um, but same truth. Uh, and so let me just give you a little bit of context before I read that passage. Um, Elijah, as I mentioned earlier, he um, challenged the prophets of Baal. Because uh, Elijah knew that, you know, Yahweh is the one true God. And so here are these prophets of Baal coming along and saying, no, worship Baal. And so Elijah kind of challenged them, if you will, to a duel. And he said, you know, okay, so we're going to have a showdown. Meet me up here on the mountain. And um, whichever God uh, sends fire to consume the sacrifice um, is the one true God. And so the prophets of Baal, you know, they're chanting, they're dancing, they're slicing their arms, they're doing everything they possibly can to get Baal to send. He's the God of nature and of elements to send down fire and consume the sacrifice. Nothing's going on. At one point, Elijah begins to taunt them and say, well, maybe he's in the bathroom. 
Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe dance a little louder, you know, or dance a little more or shout a little louder. And so he begins to taunt them. And then he says, okay, step aside. You guys had your chance. He prays to the one true God. Before he does this, he completely douses the altar with water. I mean, it's like coming up all over the sides. And then he prays, of course, the one true God shows up, consumes the sacrifice, licks up, dries up all the water. And so Elijah says, okay, people, of Israel, you see, this is the one true God. So he ordered all of the prophets of Baal to be slaughtered, to be murdered. And so um, Jezebel, who was the one who introduced Baal worship, um, she obviously was not too pleased that all of her prophets uh, had been slaughtered. And so she orders Elijah to be killed. And she says, you know, you send this message to Elijah that um, you just, just see that if by this same time tomorrow he is not dead like the prophets that he just killed. So Elijah being the great man of God, he just did this miracle, called down fire from heaven, stands up to Jezebel. No, he does not. He takes off and he runs and he hides. <laughs> this great man of God. And so God, you know, he meets up with him. He says, listen, rest, get something to eat. That's where the ravens come in and feed him. And then he says, I want you to get back up, go back, because there's still work to be done. And so that's where we pick up 1 Kings chapter 19, 15 to 19. So it says, the Lord said to him, Elijah, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Mahola, and again, this is Hebrew, so it's a hard <laughs> Mahola. I always feel like though I'm clearing something out of my throat. So anyways, to succeed you as a prophet. Um, so Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel. Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. And at this point, this is when we see Elisha speak in this story. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye. Then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and he slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. What I find really interesting about this passage is all that leads up to it. We just had Lucy share with us the story of Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal, the whole big thing, and then he's got this big thing with Jezebel, and then he's got his big thing where he goes to the mountain. It's all very big. I imagine if you put it in the movie, it'd be like the biggest part of the movie. Um, no one thought that was funny? I thought that was funny. <laughs> it's like the biggest part of the movie. And then it just cuts to Elijah in the middle of a field, kind of like, you know, when like Iron Man and Captain America are all like, what are we gonna do next? And it cuts to, you know, Tom Holland in New York City. It's just not what you would expect. And it really shows the difference between Elijah and Elisha. Elisha's just doing his thing, he's chilling, he's farming, drinking his kombucha, eating his GMO-free tomatoes, having a great time. 
and this guy shows up. Elisha was a people person, which is kind of different than maybe how Elijah was depicted in his story. See, Elisha was a positive, celebratory human being. When he's called into ministry with Elijah, what's the first thing he does? He's like, can I go, one, say bye to my family, and two, I'm going to throw a party. He butchers his oxen that he had probably relied on for his livelihood, and he gives it away, and he has a feast. I want to be at that party, you know? He, Elisha celebrated in the midst of his call into ministry. He celebrated and he blessed people. And that's something that we see throughout his ministry. Elisha liked to be around people. He followed Elijah for like 15 years. Was they developed a close relationship to the point where uh, when Elijah went back up into heaven, because he was taken away, we'll hear about that later, Elisha cried out, my father, my father, indicating that they had a very close relationship. Soon after, Elisha has his own disciple, that we see him in all, like, a good chunk of stories of miracles that Elisha does. His disciple is right there with him. As Elisha went through his ministry, he made friends. Not as many enemies, he made friends. One of these friends even built a section of their house so that when he passed by, he could stay there. Elisha let people get to know him. Elisha also likely lived with people when he wasn't traveling. There's this company of prophets that we would likely best understand them as kind of like a group of monks that Elisha would live with when he wasn't traveling through Israel. And multiple times, they come with him with a problem. Like, Elisha, we got a problem. And through the Lord, Elisha works a miracle. Elisha's ministry was marked by a care for the people around him. More importantly, it's Elisha's ministry told the people that God was a God of healing, a God of saving grace, a God of restoring power. Elisha's name means my God, my salvation, which is we see saving acts of God a lot in Elisha's interactions with kings. One of these things, one of these times, we got to backtrack. So the nation of Israel at this time was divided into two different kingdoms, the Northern kingdom and the Southern kingdom. So one of these times, Elisha was interacting with the king of the northern kingdom. His name was King Jeroam. And Jeroam was having a little bit of an issue because one of the kingdoms that the northern kingdom ruled over were the Moabites. And the Moabites were kind of rebelling against who they were over. So Jeroam asked the southern kingdom, do you love my map here, just this? Jeroam asked Jehoshaphat, the king of the southern kingdom, hey, can you help me out with this thing? And Jehoshaphat's like, sure, let's go. And so they get their armies and they go on this journey. And in about a week in, they don't have any water, which is already stressful when I'm leaving my apartment and I realize I don't have my hydro flask. And I'm like, oh no, what am I going to do? And I can just think, swing through Starbucks and get water. It's fine. But when you're in the middle of a desert and water is really hard to come by, it's a big deal. And so Jerome's out here. He's like, that's it. We're toast. We're going to die. And Jehoshaphat's like, hey, don't you guys have like a prophet of God somewhere around here? And Jerome doesn't say anything. It's actually Jerome's servant who goes, yeah, I think we have this guy, Elisha, who's like connected with Elijah. 
so maybe we should call him. And you can't really blame, well, you can blame Jerome for not speaking up about Elisha because Jerome's father was Ahab, the guy who Elijah had some serious beef with. So you wouldn't think, I don't think Jerome would be the first guy to call, call Elijah right away. So anyways, Elisha comes and he shows up and he goes, listen, if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat, I would not be here. But the Lord sees you. And the Lord's not only going to provide you with water, but he's going to deliver the Moabites to you. And so overnight, water becomes accessible to them. And then the Moabites are marching into battle because they think that this is what's going to happen. And the Moabites see the water, and to them it looks like blood. It's a very interesting thing. And so they think that the Israelite kings have turned on each other and killed each other. And so they don't go in with as much battle gear because they think they just we're going to grab the good stuff and get out of there. So they show up for a battle severely underprepared. And the Lord delivers the Moabites into the hands of the Israelites. Through Elijah in that story, God showed grace to a people that weren't really following him at the time. God's message to the Israelites at that moment was, I am your salvation and I alone am your salvation. I am your saving grace. I will restore you. In 2 Kings 14, we see the end of the life of Elisha. And he really dies a very simple death. He gets he dies. But on his deathbed, he has another king come to ask him for advice. And his king is King Joash of the northern kingdom much, much, much later. And King Joash had become king at a very young age. He was like seven years old. So Elisha was likely a close counselor to him and probably to give him advice. But we see that King Joash didn't really take Elisha's advice. So Elisha is on his deathbed and the northern Israel is under a lot of stress because of different nations attacking them. And King Joash probably feels like if this prophet dies, all of our hope is gone. And so he comes and he's weeping and weeping and he says, my father, my father. Which is the same phrase at the beginning of Elisha's ministry that Elijah, that Elisha says to Elijah as he's taken up to heaven. So we know that these guys have a close relationship. And Elisha says to him, all right, deliver you, like deliver you, strike the ground. And so King Joash strikes the ground three times. And then Elisha goes, why didn't you strike the ground more? Because of this, you're only going to be delivered three times, but you could have been delivered more. And then dies, which is a very sobering end to his life and story. But what it's interesting when you look at the beginning of his ministry and the end of his ministry, the beginning ends with him asking Elijah, can I have a double portion of your spirit? Can I have more? And ends with, didn't you ask for more? Elijah cared deeply about the people that too, as we see in this passage. But in the midst of all of his interactions, Elijah's message to the people of Israel at that time was that God is a healer. He is a and he is your salvation. All right, so why did we take time to kind of debrief profile these guys? We wanted you to see that um, there are two very different people. Um, even though they were both prophets to the nation of Israel, both prophets to um, God used them 
in a different way and their personalities, their characters were different. They were two different people. Kind of the guy, like I said, who showed up on the scene and people, their knees immediately started knocking together because they knew if he's showing up, he means business. Something's about to happen. Elisha was more of a people person, not that Elijah wasn't, but that's, that's the picture that is painted of him throughout his lifetime. And so two very, both prophets, both prophetic voices to the nation of Israel, to the people of God, uh, both used mightily of God, but two very different wanted you to see that. And so what are some lessons learned as we see two very different prophets whose ministries overlapped, who walked and ministered side by side with one another, but then um, there was a succession. He, Elijah is taken away and he knows he's about to be taken There's something of a preparation because he's in essence passing the baton now to Elisha. And so if you'll turn with me to 2 Kings, nine. Um, I just want to talk to you very briefly about this interaction as Elisha is leaving and as his prophetic ministry, Elisha is coming up behind him. So uh, 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 9, it says, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what can I do for you before I am taken from you? I do for you before I am taken from you. I love, love, love that he asked that question. I love interactions wasn't necessarily him giving directives. Like, okay, Elisha, now I know at some point you're going to cross a body of water. So what you want to do is you want to take the cloak, right shoulder, your left shoulder. You want to come down hard on it. Okay, are you taking notes? He didn't give him a bunch of directives. I love that one of their very last interactions was him question. What can I do for you? Um, he didn't say, I've been doing this a long time, so I know exactly what you need to do. He asked a question, and he listened to the response. And now I have to turn that inward, and I'm asking you to turn that inward. Am I willing? God, who is it that I need to bring along with me? So Elijah, Elijah was told that Elisha was going to succeed him. So he Maybe you already know, but if you don't, are you willing to ask that question? God, who around me can I approach and be very intentional about saying? And then after I have identified that person or group of people, can I then also ask the question of them? What to help prepare you to do what God is telling you to do? What can I do to help you to impart something to you? the ministry that God has entrusted you with. So now what about life just in general? A lot of this has been in the context of leadership, showing kindness, compassion, and understanding to the people or to the person that we just don't get. Like, I just don't don't get that if you're a younger person. I don't get that old neighbor next door who comes out every morning and feeds the birds. I mean, come on, enough with the birds. They're person who's saying, I don't get that young person that I work with, my coworker. they're always playing loud music and using weird words and doing this. They touch their chin so much. I, I just don't get them. And I have found myself saying and doing the same thing. I found myself clicking on the 
cracking up at the videos about millennials who don't realize that life exists before noon. It does. And I find myself laughing and shaking. These young people, these young people, if this is who our nation is left to, we are in trouble. I've said that. But how about, how about instead of criticizing and or complaining, how about I come alongside? And I come along. How can I walk with you on your journey? Tell me what would that even look like? Walk with you on your journey and then have like, okay, so I'm going to walk with you and we're going to do this and we're going to go here and we're going to read this and we're going to, but asking like, what does that even look like for me to walk with you? Asking those questions. Multi-generational ministry is going to take a collaboration each learning from the other. And I believe that it begins with asking simple questions. Elijah asked, what can I do for you? Great question. A great question for him to ask, a great question for us to ask. But then let's not even stop there. Let's ask, what can we do together? How can we walk together? Great questions to ask. There is value in doing life alongside each other, especially with people who are different than us. Elisha shows us the benefit of, and the blessing that comes with living in actual proximity to people that not only know more than us, but are outside of our own generational bubble. Elisha would not leave Elijah's side when Elijah is getting ready to go up to the mountain to be taken by the Lord to heaven, he knows he's going to leave. Elijah tells Elisha, hey, I'm going to take off. You stay here. And Elijah says, no, I'm going with you. And so he goes with him. And along the way, they run into a couple people. And these people are like, Elisha, why are you going with Elijah? Don't you know that the Lord's going to take him today? And Elisha goes, yes, I know. Be quiet. And he continues on. And he runs into this again, where the guys are like, hey, don't you know that the Lord's going to take Elijah today? He says, yes, I know. Be quiet. I'm sticking with this guy. And he stays with him. I think in part, Elisha wanted to because that's what he had done for the last 15 years. But I also think that Elisha knew that the Lord was working something special. And he knew if he stayed with Elijah that he would get whatever Elisha was getting, or he would get whatever Elisha was getting. There was a blessing that he knew he could receive if he stuck with Elisha. Most of us, or all of us, I will say all of us, that's true. All of us are a younger generation to someone. The blessing that comes with working and living closely with generations that have gone before us means that we can reap the blessings and the lessons that they've received and learned. Elisha's mentality of, there's something that I can gain from this. There's something that I can gain from being close to Elijah allowed him to receive a greater blessing. There's always something that we can learn from somebody else even if we do things a lot differently than somebody else. If I, or you, 
finds yourself as the younger generation in a given situation, there's something that can be learned from the older generation. And if I, or you, finds yourself as the older generation in a given situation, there's something that can be learned from the younger generation. But it's being in close relationship with one another that allows this to happen. Often when we talk about generations, or even just people, honestly, when do we talk about people? It's easy for us to put people into us and them categories. I'm a millennial, you're this. I'm this, you're that. And we can get into this us, it's us versus them mentality, or it's us versus them way we talk. And I love the author Christina Cleveland. She's a social, social psychologist, so she studies how people interact and think. And she talks about this kind of us and them versus thinking. And it's actually a brain process that we have to put people into categories. For example, when you go to a restaurant and you meet a hostess, you already know what a hostess is going to do because you've been to a restaurant before that's not Whataburger. <laughs> and you walk in and you're like, oh, this is a hostess. She's going to say, hi, how many are in your party? We'd like two, three, five, whatever your number is. And she's like, all right, it's going to be like 15 minutes. 25 minutes later, you go ahead and she puts you to your table. But you know that's the process that's going to go because you've run into a hostess before. And that process is there so our brains don't have to overthink. It's a blessing that God has created us for. But sometimes that same process can work in not our favor because we can put people into categories without really getting to know them. We can say, oh, you're, you're a Gen X, or oh, you're a boomer, or oh, you're Gen Z, oh, you're Gen Alpha, oh, you're a millennial. And it keeps us from actually getting to know people on a human level. We as people aren't supposed to live life in our own generational bubble. We need to step out of that. We're meant to live life together. We're not created to live life in isolation. We're created to live life together. I love what Lucy had to say about asking questions because I do not like to ask questions because I like to make it, you guys think that I have it all together when my life is falling apart. Does anyone else identify with that? Is it just me? Because I'll start to feel sick and then I'll go like, hey, like my stomach kind of hurts. Look it up on WebMD and WebMD is like, congratulations, Rachel, you're dying. And I'm like, oh my gosh. When really I could have just called my mom or Miss Julie could have been like, hey, Rachel, you probably need to drink water because you live in Texas now. You're probably dehydrated. When I try to make people think that I have it all together, or it's all good, I miss out on the opportunity for community that I believe God has created us for as I navigate different issues. I'm meant to lean into those different generational spheres, those different generational bubbles. So instead of like, okay, I got this problem, I need to handle it all by myself, I can reach out and be like, hey, I'm having a problem. Have you ever been in that situation where you feel good and maybe you haven't drank water for a long time? Yes. <laughs> Do you have any experience that I could get advice from? A phrase that I've used, and I think we throw around a lot, is who are you doing life with? 
Who are you inviting to the close proximity of your life? And if we take, in, take a second to look at who that might be, and all those people kind of look the same as we do, we might be missing out on something. I think we're missing out on something earnestly special that the Lord desires for us to have. Because inviting people outside of our own generational sphere allows for the Lord to speak to us in ways that we might not easily see. Elijah offered, Elijah asked a question to Elisha. Hey, is there anything that you need before I go? And Elisha wasn't like, nah, dude, it's good. I've been following you around for 15 years. I got it. He's like, please, I need something. Whereas we've seen King Joash at the end of Elisha's life, having missed out on a, year, on a life's worth of opportunity to ask questions and receive advice and missing out on asking for something more. I think I can get better at asking questions and taking advice. And yet, I am still a firm believer that there is something that you can learn from everyone. There are lots of things that Lucy knows, lots and lots and lots of things that Lucy knows that I know I can learn from. Lots and lots of things. And there are some things that I might know that that Lucy can learn from. But if either of us discount what the other one has to say, we're going to miss out on something important, on something valuable that the Lord desires for us to have. And it's our attitude. It's how close we are to each other. It's my thinking towards people outside of my own generational bubble that will affect my relationships. My thinking needs to move out of it's us versus them. Or I'm going to miss out on something wonderful and important that God desires for me to have. Amen. So in conclusion, we're going to wrap this up by just giving um, each one of us the opportunity to reflect on some questions, um, to just take a moment and just you and the Lord just have a posture to be receptive, to say, Lord, I'm going to honestly ask this question. And if I am in error, if I need some correction, if I need to submit some things to you, I'm going to, I choose to do that. I choose to do that today. And so um, the bottom line is that um, making the name of Jesus known is going to take all of us. No one person, no one generation, no one church, no one city is going to do it. And we're not meant to do it. Making the name of Jesus known and bringing people to a knowledge of who he is is going to take all of us. So would you just take a moment with me? Uh, Rachel and I are going to read a series of questions. And would you just honestly ask the Lord to examine your heart and to show you, <laughs> have him show you where you fall on this continuum? Question number one. Have I disregarded or dismissed someone solely on the basis of their age? If I disregarded or dismissed someone solely on the basis of their age? Have I assumed that because someone is not of my generation that they are my enemy and not my ally? 
Have I assumed that because someone is not of my generation that they are my enemy and not my ally? Have I been resistant to allow others to minister in a way that may look different from how I've done it? How intentional have I been about bringing someone alongside me with the purpose of us learning from each other? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of life that we have. And we recognize that as a gift. I pray that you would open our eyes to the joys and the gifts and the lessons that we can learn from each other. Lord, we thank you for generations younger than us for the life and the energy and the fresh perspective that they bring. Lord, we thank you for generations that are older than us, for their willingness to share their lessons and experiences and how they have seen your faithfulness time and time again and are willing to share those stories of encouragement with us. Holy Spirit, would you adjust our perspective so that we might be open to hear what each other has to say? In this church, would you remind us that you have brought us together for such a time as this? And you desire for us not to only be in relationship with you together, but to bring people into relationship with you together. In Jesus' name, amen.